Hi everyone, I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Welcome to Yoga Birth Babies, a podcast produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. We will be diving into everything prenatal yoga, birth, and baby related, hoping to inspire, educate, and empower you through your journey into motherhood. Thank you for listening. For my yoga teacher friends who are interested in working with the pregnant population, Prenatal Yoga Center offers an 85-hour Yoga Alliance certified program based on our three-pronged theory of prenatal yoga, asana, education, and community. Once a year, we hold our three-month immersion program in New York City. For those who cannot attend this training, Caprice and I are now traveling to different locations holding our training at hosting studios where we will spend six days working together, exploring and learning about prenatal yoga. This training consists of more than 50 hours working together. We also created a whole membership website with more than 20 videos corresponding directly to the manual you will receive. For more information, check out our website at prenatalyogacenter.com. Hope to work with you soon. Take care. Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Flaschenberg, and I am your host for Yoga Birth Babies. And today we're going to talk about the newest ACOG statement, Approaches to Limit Intervention During Labor and Birth. And we have Hensi Goer, who's going to speak with us about that. Let me tell you a little bit about Hensi. Hensi Goer, award-winning medical writer and international speaker, is an acknowledged expert on evidence-based maternity care. Her first book, Obstetric Myths vs. Research Realities, was a valued resource for childbirth professionals. Its successor, Optimal Care in Childbirth, The Case for Physiological Approach, won the American College of Nurse Midwives Best Book of the Year Award. Goer has also written The Thinking Woman's Guide to a Better Birth, which gives pregnant women access to the research evidence as well as consumer education pamphlets and articles for trade, consumer, and academic periodicals. And she posts regularly on Lamaze International's Science and Sensibility. Goer is the director and founder of Childbirth U, a website offering narrated slide lectures at a modest cost to help pregnant women make informed decisions and obtain optimal care for themselves and their babies. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. How are you today? Oh, I am fine, thank you, and I hope that you are the same. Yes, I am. So for our listeners, this is really exciting for me to be finally speaking with Hens. We've tried to book this time three weeks already, and things have always come up, so it's really exciting that we can sit down and chat, and also give me our listeners a little bit of background. So when I first did my prenatal yoga teacher training at, Holistic, at the Seattle Holistic Center over 15 years ago... Hensi's book was actually part of our curriculum, so this is really special for me to have a chance to speak with her. So, Hensi, do you mind just telling us a little bit about yourself and what drew you to becoming a medical writer and researcher on behalf of evidence-based maternity care? You know, it was it really had to do with the um, the difference in experience between my first birth and my second birth, and those children are now over 40 and and approaching 40 so that was a while ago but nonetheless in the first experience while it would be considered an uneventful vaginal birth for the time it left me deeply depressed and just very unhappy whereas the second birth i came out of it feeling empowered and really good about myself and who i was and what i could accomplish and that 
led me down the path because I wanted to um, teach women that the choices that they made would have profound significance for how they were going to feel about themselves and uh, their babies and their partners. And so I started by becoming a Lamaze teacher. But I very shortly found that uh, this was right about at the time when the uh, high intervention rates were starting, that that people needed accurate information because what women were telling me, their doctors were telling them in their classes, I knew was not the case. So I had also become a a doula at this point, although that that wasn't an official thing at the time, but there were those of us who were doing that and it eventually did develop into an organized paraprofession. But I had a a major in biology and I liked reading the research and I liked writing. So that started taking me down the path of researching the information, synthesizing it, evaluating it, and um, writing and writing about it and speaking about it. And eventually I moved away from becoming an educator and, and a, a doula uh, because I had this special thing and I was finding teaching Lamaze classes increasingly unsatisfying and attending births increasingly increasingly unsatisfying because of what I was seeing and hearing and really powerless to do anything about. Okay. And that led you into the idea of of the writing. Yes. And I started out with uh, handouts for my own classes and ended up writing books. That's pretty fascinating. And I'm glad you did because your books have really led the way for many women. So I wanted to talk to you. I approached you specifically to talk about the new ACOG statement that came out. So it feels like it's starting to head in the right direction for women. I know you have a lot of background, a deep background in the medical writing and the research. So I'd love to know your thoughts, just the general thoughts before we start to hit some of the points individually. Well, when I read the committee opinion, I didn't know exactly how to react because on the one hand, it was jaw-droppingly earth-shaking that for the first time, ACOG as an organization was admitting that the overuse of medical interventions and labor were not doing good and were doing harm and maybe they should back off. On the other hand, the document is so riddled with caveats and, well, if she wants this, I mean, it's kind of like the Cinderella experience. It's like, well, it might be a good idea for first not to use all these interventions if she isn't being induced and if she's perfectly healthy and if she asks for it and if and if and if. So it became... I don't know how I feel about it. I don't know whether to cheer or jeer. (laughs) Okay. All right. Well, let's start to break down some of the points because I think that might help us get a sense of, like, you're right, there's definitely some things to celebrate and then some things to scratch our head and say, hmm, what exactly are they saying? So one of the things that really struck me is that recently the benchmark for describing early labor shifted from the traditional zero to three centimeters to zero to six. I think that's exciting to push and refrain from women entering the hospital too early and there's even suggestion of separate space for women to rest and be offered support techniques. Have you actually heard or seen that concept being put into action? Um, I'm not really tuned in to what's happening on the ground. Mm-hmm. My guess is, at least as far as creating a separate space for, in which women who were in early labor could be, my, ba- my guess is that on economic principles, not going to happen. 
because to set aside a space for women and their companions and their partner where they could have access to the things that they need is not generating income for the hospital and economics is what it's all about mm-hmm. now there there could be lesser things um even in terms of how women would have access to a special support line that, that, or they could come in and be checked and hang out and then go home. So I think there are ways working around that. Um, I have to say I'm, I'm kind of a cynic in that. I, I don't think, I don't see things changing easily. There are things that could be done in that area. I think probably it would be more important for women to seize on the new information about if they're in good health, if there's no medical reasons why they need to be admitted to the hospital earlier than active labor, that they need to learn how to take care of themselves and their partners and understand the difficulties of laboring at home and what their stress points might be and address those. And this is going to be a recurring refrain in this talk, I suspect, but a a really good set of childbirth preparation classes, and if they can afford it, to hire a doula, um, I think would be a much better path for any woman than hoping that the hospital is going to take care of it for her. I, I totally agree. One thing I was thinking, though, if we're starting to look at moving the traditional zero to three to zero to six, you know, for early labor, I'm thinking that most of the time the care providers say, you know, don't come in in early labor. That might actually benefit the hospitals, especially if they're thinking economics. You know, they don't want someone super early to be hanging around. So if they're actually starting to Except that it's not till past six that we go into active labor, that might actually persuade women to stay at home more and have less intervention. Well, but then the question is, especially for the first-time mother, how far along is she? So I think we need to change the mindset, and the women need to be proactive about this, is that if it's during the daytime, can they drop by their provider's office and be checked? If it's at night, uh, to drop by the hospital and be checked? I would say, though, and this is from my experience as a a Lamaze teacher and a doula and, and birth stories, If they go into the hospital and get checked, hang around for a while and get checked again before you go home, especially if you live at a distance, because for some women, the psychology of, okay, now I'm where it's going to happen, it's like they may get checked and they're they're only three centimeters, but things have actually been changing and just the psychology of being where they're going to have the baby is enough to kick them into active labor. So Mm -hmm. it's worth hanging around and getting checked again. But again, I think women have to be proactive. And now they have the support of the research in discussing it with their care provider to come up with a plan of how are we going to handle early labor so I am admitted at an appropriate time. Yes, I love that. So I'm going to now move to one of the next points. What is your interpretation of their suggestion for term premature rupture of the membranes? Do you think it's going to lessen immediate intervention for low-risk women? It's hard to say because... Because obstetricians are not constrained by the recommendations of their um, of, of, of their governing you know, their their professional body. I suspect that those doctors who were more relaxed about rupture of um, 
of inducing labor after rupture of membranes are going to continue to be more relaxed. I don't know as it's going to change any minds. And in particular, the way it's phrased in the committee opinion is, well, it's okay not to induce kind of like if she asks for it. Oops, sorry. I Somehow our, our sound just got off a little bit. Can you repeat that? The way it's phrased? The way it's it's phrased in the in in the committee opinion, actually let me just take a look at it here. It it acknowledges that uh, that based on the and on the research, most women are gonna go into labor spontaneously within twenty-four hours of membrane rupture. Um, but then it goes on and 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 it basically says, well, advisor of the risks they're really the risks are, are, are and and then if she still wants to hold off, it's okay to do that. Which is, but I think in in practical terms, any woman who's advised that there are risks and we don't know, but but so we can we can hold off inducing you if you don't want me to, but 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 do understand that there is these risks. Um, is I, I I think there are few women who would go against her doctor's recommendation to the contrary. And and I would point out in a case like that, um, and there are other cases as well, is that advising women of the downside or that we don't know what the downside might be without telling her the other side of the picture, which is the risks of intervention or the benefits of non-intervening, does not institute informed consent. So that's a whole other issue. All right, so we're going to go down to another big topic, intermittent monitoring. So as a doula, I feel like I've met a lot of resistance for hospitals that allow intermittent monitoring. I feel like it's only been with midwives or in birth centers or in, hospital, or in home births where they pull out the Doppler. So what are your thoughts about intermittent monitoring? Because ACOG seems to be supporting this now. Well, again, there's this weasel wording it's 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 more like again it's the Cinderella effect like if she's low risk and if she is an and, and and it goes on I think again it's put on her to request it oh so that the statement has that the mother has to request it yeah hang on just a second so it says to facilitate Take the option of intermittent auscultation, that means listening on a periodic basis with a, with a handheld Doppler. Obstetrician, gynecologists, and other obstetric providers and facilities should consider adopting protocols and training staff to use a handheld Doppler. It's like, really? They don't already know how to use one? I mean, that, that in itself is mind-blowing. For low-risk women who desire such monitoring. Well, first of all, almost nobody's going to fit into that low-risk uh, category. And second of all, who desire. I think it's worthwhile pointing out to here just how weasel-worded this is. Because the Canadian Professional Obstetricians and Gynecologists Society says up front, as does the Royal College of Obstetricians, and gynecologists, so that's the UK professional body, right up front says low-risk women, the superior method is intermittent listening. So how do we now help our students or our, our community fit into that category? Um, 
I think I would flip that. I think, and, and I'm sort of anticipating the end of this talk, which is, again, how can women take care of themselves? I think they have to choose hospitals and care providers who practice evidence-based medicine and, and not get themselves in the position of trying to make an exception for themselves. I can't agree with you more. It's so interesting. So I've now done, I think, about 45 of these podcasts, and I feel like everyone I speak to, no matter, you know, I've spoken to wonderful people, it all comes down to not thinking you're the exception and thinking way ahead of time about, I call it your birth posse, planning your birth posse really, really well. Because I hear time after time that a student will come up to me and she really wants to have a physiological birth. She wants to try to stay away from intervention, but she's aligned herself with a hospital and a care provider that doesn't necessarily practice that, yet she thinks that through her study that she can go in with like a shield up saying, I know the information, I'm going to fight against it. And it's it's hard. It's hard. The woman shouldn't have to think of that during her birth. She should go more into that primal space. So you, once again, has resonated with the idea we have to be really wise with who we choose. Well, I, again, I feel like I'm jumping ahead to what should be the <laughs> summation, but essentially from the get-go, the woman that wants optimal care. And let me define that because I'm, I'm not about natural childbirth. And that's the label that people like you and I often get. Optimal care is a concept that was developed by the American College of Nurse Midwives. It is the least use of medical intervention that produces the best outcomes given the woman's individual case. So nobody is saying, oh, no, there should never be cesareans, or, no, oh, women shouldn't have epidurals, or whatever it might be. It has to do with that woman's individual circumstances. Having said that, the, and this is why um, not being able to do a new edition of my uh, Thinking Woman's Guide to a Better Birth turned out to be a benefit because it led me to think of Childbirth You, which is online. It comes down to what choices does the woman have from the get-go? Who has she chosen for, for where she wants to birth her baby and her care provider? So you've got a couple of different cases. You have cases where women have a lot of options, in which case I would invite her to um, think seriously about a, a good midwife and, and understand that not all midwives are alike, and to consider a place of birth where if she can't find a, a, a progressive hospital with, with policies that support physiologic birth, to consider if she's healthy and out of hospital birth. But then you have the woman who doesn't have a lot of options. And that's a different story. And then I think we get to um, your birth posse and um, setting up that she will be able so that she, and, and there are things that she can do. But it kind of starts with what are her options? And, and it starts from the choices she makes from the get-go. Mm-hmm. I, I love what you talked about with the optimal care because I, I do think you're right that people like you and me and most of the people I speak with were pigeonholed of just believing in natural birth. And as I tell our teacher trainees who I work with to teach this, is that we don't want to demonize medicine because there's times that it's extremely valid. I just think, as you pointed out, that 
it should be individualized, and I ju- personally, I just don't think it is. I think it's more routine and protocol, which is why I was excited to see that at least ACOG was acknowledging, at least I felt, a little bit more of looking at women individually. Like, even just saying the intermittent monitoring, getting back to that, if someone is low risk that and she desires it, which is kind of hard to put in the hands of the woman at that point, um, that that's even an option, because I, I just don't see that a lot. And I don't, I'm wondering if all hospital staff even knows how to use a Doppler. Well, if I can make a small pitch, it it has to do with asking questions during an interview process, which means you set up time if you're interviewing a particular provider. And one of the lectures on the website on Childbirth U is um, obtaining optimal care, 10 issues to explore, that sets up the questions that you want to ask and intermittent monitoring is one of them. The answers you want to hear and why you want those answers. Why why is that the optimal treatment? But then there's a second piece, which is will, because you're never going to find the perfect circumstance. Mm -hmm. I mean, well, not never, but it's hard in, in our system. So the next circumstance is how flexible is the person that you're talking with? And and those are questions you you can you can ask too, such as how do you feel about birth plans? Mm-hmm. If they're against them, that's a red flag. That means they're not interested in shared decision making. So there are other things that you can do to get your your best your best choices. Mm-hmm. That's great. I'm going to make sure that we'll put that on our show notes so we can link to Childbirth You. So getting back to the, of course, because getting back to the statement, there was a segment about non-pharmacological and pharmacological techniques, and that put me off a little bit. So I'm going to quote what they say. Methodologies for rating pain and applying these techniques have been varied. Therefore, exact techniques that are most effective had not been determined. However, ACOG seems to be looking for specific data to support and discredit these techniques. So it seems kind of impossible since pain is subjective and coping skills vary. What are your thoughts on that segment? Well, it's interesting that immediately after they make that statement, they provide evidence from the research that these non-pharmacologic techniques are helpful and useful. So it's like, did the left hand not know what the right hand was writing? (laughs) The other problem that I have with that statement is while there is some room to, I mean, okay, without a doubt, epidurals do the best job at relieving pain. So there's nothing that compares to that in terms of effectiveness. But what they leave off the table is all of these other non-pharmacologic techniques have no harms connected with them. And what they leave off is mentioning that opioids and epidurals do. So for that reason, the first line should be non-pharmacologic techniques of all different kinds, which, by the way, women themselves report as being effective, as effective as narcotics or opioids in surveys of women themselves. I'm I'm sure you're familiar with listening to mothers, which which Mm -hmm. asked women about these things. So if I'm talking to pregnant women, I would say your first line should be to have a full toolbox of techniques for coping with labor that don't involve drugs. Um, second line would be 
delaying an epidural, even if you're thinking you might probably want one. Um, third line would be, I think everybody, even if you're planning on an epidural, should have a full array of tools at your disposal for coping with with the pain of labor. And it's for a couple of reasons. You're going to be experiencing pain while you're still at home, especially if you want to stay home until you're in active labor. So you need to know how are you going to make yourself comfortable. Second thing is, suppose you get there and you're all ready for your epidural and they say, oh, sorry, the anesthesiologist is in surgery right now. What are you going to do? Third thing is, you might find out labor isn't as difficult as you thought it was going to be, and your tools will get you through. So I kind of wandered off the path. But going back to the paper itself, by not acknowledging the other side of the picture, which is the harms of the drugs, they are not giving a balanced picture for why non-pharmacological techniques should be your first option should be plan A. Do you want to, do you feel prepared to just talk about somewhat those, some of the harms? Because I feel like um, epidurals are so commonplace that women may not think there are side effects. Um, let's see. They... Well, I, I know this is controversial, but I think there is some good data that they do increase the likelihood of cesarean delivery, even though the common wisdom now is, oh, no, they don't. And I won't go into the details of that, but there is there are weaknesses in the arguments um, based on research that it doesn't, and there are some very compelling articles that it does. Um, it is a gateway to all sorts of other interventions, each of which has their own adverse effects, and certainly you want to avoid them if you can, such as the use of Pitocin, um, increased instrumental delivery. Um, It also, and it interferes, this is a big one now that I think is, is not really thought of as much as it should be, but Labor and birth are orchestrated by this magnificent dance of hormones between the mother and her baby. And epidurals have a major impact on interfering with the how those hormones work, um, including hormones that orchestrate the woman's experience of the labor, such as beta endorphins, which is like the, the hormone that we all know about for runner's high and that top-of-the-world feeling. So both physically and emotionally, um, you mess with those hormones, and you don't even know what you're messing with. It's one of those things we don't know what we don't know, but what we do know suggests that it's not a good idea. Mm -hmm. And the other thing about epidurals, and by the way, please don't think, I don't want your listeners to think I'm at all anti-epidural. I think every woman has the right to make a choice for herself, and no other person has the right to say for her how much she should or should not be able to withstand in terms of labor. But on the other hand, an epidural changes how people treat you as well. So you sort of lose any sense of empowerment or that you can do this yourself you just kind of become a body in the bed, um, and people are doing things to you. And again, their labor is a rite of passage. 
which is supposed to challenge you and have you come out on the other side having mastered it and feeling really ready and empowered for motherhood. And um, I, I understand that someone could care less about that experience, and I totally respect that decision. But it does make a difference. So if I had more time to think, I could, I mean, there's a, again, I have a lecture on childbirth you about um, coping with the, coping with labor that goes into the pros and cons of, of all of the options. Okay, no, I just wanted to put it out there because, again, like you, I'm not going to judge a woman should she take an epidural or not, but I, I feel like, again, it's so commonplace, and I'm not sure if we think of it as it could be an intervention. Kind of like how I feel like a lot of women think about cesarean as it's not a major abdominal surgery because it's so commonplace, where, in fact, it is a major abdominal yes. surgery. So that's just why I wanted to put that out there, just so women can make informed decisions with all the information because I don't think always that information is is on the forefront. But I would add to that that with the typical hospital experience, it becomes a choiceless choice. Mm-hmm. So, and this is, I'm quoting Judith Lothian, who was, um, uh, who, who's, she's a nursing professor, and, uh, and quoting her from a book, it's like, if you admit this woman to the hospital, and she's tied to the bed, and she's got the IV, and she's got the monitor, I mean, the best that anybody can do for her is maybe her partner can slide his hand and rub her back a little bit. What are her options in terms of what she can do to cope with pain? So I think, of, mm-hmm. as, as Judith Lothian says, of course she's going to end up with an epidural. That's the only viable option that she has for coping with labor. So again, for the woman who is hoping for an unmedicated birth, that's her plan A. Um, I think she has to be proactive and choose an environment in which she can maximize her chances of achieving plan A, which means mobility, which means soaking tubs, which means um, birth balls, which means, you know, and I'm sure that uh, you have other podcasts that would give talk about what other mm-hmm. options there are and what the women need. The whole toolkit, yes. The whole toolkit. <laughs> well, thank you for that. So I'm going to jump to another topic. So can you talk a little about laboring down and explain what that is for those who don't know it, uh, what it is, and your interpretation of this in the ACOG statement? So with so many women having epidurals and with the observation that they don't seem to push as effectively, the idea which is – and they don't really – often feel much of an urge to push, that you might get more spontaneous vaginal births if you allowed the head to descend lower before you began actively coaching her to push. And the reason that that helps is the lower that the head descends, it stretches um, uh, receptors in the in the cervix and vagina that send messages to the to the pituitary in the woman's brain that actually produces surges of oxytocin that is the urge to push so that was called laboring down um there's some other terms for it as well but essentially you just wait until she either develops a strong urge to push or you can begin to see the baby's head if you're looking at the opening to the vagina, in which case you begin coaching her to push. 
And there is a systematic review on that topic that says, if you do that, it doesn't do any harm. And there's some suggestion that it does increase spontaneous vaginal births. Okay, good. So, yeah, I like the idea because we don't want women to start pushing too early because then they're on the clock and then they might be told, oh, you didn't progress, baby's too big or whatever. So I like the idea that women have some time to do this. And now there is this idea to, if a woman is on an epidural, to give her an extra hour over what is currently recommended, which is... um, two hours if you're a first-time mother and one hour if you're a woman that's had a baby before. So then that would move to three and two. However, there's a very good study, and this is, I I did a blog post on it. In fact, it's up on Science and Sensibility as well if somebody wants to search for it or you want to include the link later. There's a very interesting large study that shows that you can give women even lots more time without compromising outcomes. So, so giving women more time who are on an epidural is, is, is a good thing. I will add to that that for women who aren't on an epidural, that they should be allowed to push how and when they please and in the positions they please. This whole thing about laboring down is to solve a problem that happens because the woman is numb. Mm-hmm. I want to make that distinction because I think one of the things is that we should not be coaching or prescribing positions for women who um, who don't have epidurals. And we should allow for the fact that with the onset of second stage, contractions often get weaker for a while. Um, Penny Simpkin talks about that. And that should be allowed to happen. They'll come back. And with yes, I actually, I think something I've seen as a doula is that Sometimes the, the care provider may not feel comfortable helping a mom in second stage deliver than on her back. So I think, again, that kind of goes back to the, some of the interview questions way before mom's even feeling the urge to push, you know, like in the beginning, first trimester, of how is this care provider going to support her during that stage so she's not negotiating that situation at that time. Well, as far as pushing position, I think that's mostly a nursing issue because usually it's the nurse like in the like now you're fully dilated and you're it's time to push. That's actually not the doctor wouldn't be there all that often. Midwife might be, but I think that's more a conversation to have about nursing practices as far as position because Typically, the obstetrician comes much, much later to just be there for the actual birth. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Yeah, it may, I think it may differ depending on where. From what I've seen in the New York hospitals, um, once she starts to push, the care provider's there, and then if it looks like it's going to take a while, then they leave. Um, and granted, I was always there as a doula, so 
I was often left by myself with just the nurse, myself, and and the parents, or even just sometimes me and the parents, and the doctor comes and goes. But usually at the start of pushing, I had seen a lot of them, just in case it actually is quick. Um, I want to move on to, oh, yeah. Well, did you have trouble negotiating with nurses having getting women into different positions? Which, by the way, you can do even with an epidural. Or yes. were nurses resistant um, or, or uh, helpful? Some of them were resistant, um, yet some I learned as a doula, I learned some fantastic techniques. I learned this one years ago t- called the tug of war, um, where mm. there was a squatting bar and the mom puts her feet up and then she pulls on, you know, rebozo or a sheet or whatever. I learned that from an L&D nurse. But I hadn't actually seen a ton inviting the mom to try anything other than on her back. Well, now you have opened the door again to women needing to be proactive about pushing position in the sense that it's the nurse may or may not suggest things to try. So having a doula there or being very well prepared to try things herself. Yeah, and then I have had situations where the care provider will say, okay, you can push however you want, but when it's time for the baby to be born, I need, I want you on your back. So I think that, again, goes back to knowing how that care provider practices. So. Yes, but, you know, you're rarely going to find the perfect situation. So if she's been free to push right. in the position she likes, but the doctor is insistent that she give birth on her back, you know, so be it. I mean, what yeah. you have to consider where I mean, and, and this is going to be again different for, for each of your listeners is where do you want to draw lines in the sand, and where can you compromise? What can you live with? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always tell them to kind of pick your top three priorities and see where you can go with that and not have... I don't really love the idea of birth plans. I go oh, more birth preferences so that the mom doesn't feel like if something strays, she's failed in any way. That It's more about, I'd prefer to try to do this, but I'm open to see what happens here. That way she doesn't feel so uh, strangled by her own ideas. I would go a bit stronger than that. Because, you know, even with a plan, I think I think plans have been distorted, but we often make plans. We can make plans to be admitted to a particular college, and then we don't. So we have a, another plan. We have a plan B. But I think the, the problem I see with preferences is it... Hmm. I think that in the process of exploring a birth plan, first of all, I think it's something that should be developed with the care provider. I mean, you don't come in with a list and say, here's what I want. It's like there should be a discussion around it in terms of, so under what circumstances would you now, would you recommend against this? But I think women really need to take their power back and understand that they have the right to informed refusal. This is, the assumption is that if we explain it well enough to you, you are going to agree. And that leaves out that she has the right to say, I've considered this, and I say no. And ACOG, by the way, it supports this explicitly. In practice, though, it's very, very difficult. And again, I would say, should a woman say, um, I've, I've thought it over, and I'm, I, I want to wait on doing X. Um, I mean, obviously, if there's an emergency happening, that's a whole different scenario. If she does that, though, I, I again, it should be a mutual exploration. Under 
what circumstances would she change or consider changing her mind? I, I can actually give you an example of that if you want to take the time. Yes. Yes, please. So years ago, I was at a labor with a woman who um, was having um, fetal continuous fetal monitoring, and they came and they said, um, so we want to do internal monitoring. And she talked to them about it, and they said, you know, there, wasn't, there didn't seem to be any compelling reason. And so she turned it down. And they said, okay. And then they came back a couple of hours later, and they said, so we want to do internal monitoring. And she said, kind of tell me more. And then they pointed out to her that they were losing the signal, and they were seeing these dips in the baby's heart rate. But because they were losing the signal, they could not tell how fast the baby's heart rate was recovering. And that's a key point in whether you've got a baby in trouble or you don't, in which case she said, fine, let's do the internal monitoring. So there's an example of a really appropriate decision-making organ uh, discussion, um, as opposed to the kinds of pressure that can be brought to bear on women when they just want to, want you to do what they want you to do. That's a very clear, compelling reason, and I think the communication was particularly good with the care provider and the woman that they told her why, and she was she understood it and then could go forward. Um, I think that's wonderful that it was so clearly explained. I'm I'm on the fence of how often that is explained that well and the communication is that clear. But I love what you were saying about that she was able to make a consent, an informed decision. Well, at the very least, under under any circumstances, if she doesn't just say, nope, not going to do that, if she presents herself as being reasonable, open-minded, interested in shared decision-making, she can't control what the other person does, but she certainly maximizes the chances for it going in a way that doesn't become confrontational. Mm-hmm. No, I never want, I would never want a uh, client to go in confrontational because that's just going to create uh, anxiety and confrontation and distress around the birth. And I think that's the last thing we want to have around a woman's birth. So getting back to our guidelines, I'd love to wrap it up with just how would you suggest a woman advocate for herself in a traditional hospital setting? Well, I still think it goes back to the original choices that she makes. Um, I think, um, Having a doula is helpful, although the doula cannot advocate for her. The doula will at least give her somebody who is completely in her corner. Um, I think her preparation involves taking a really good set of childbirth classes, not, not you know, like come in for um, a few hours over the weekend and we'll tell you what our procedures and practices are, but a really good set so that she understands the issues. Um, there is the BRAIN acronym for making informed choices. Again, if it's not an emergency, BRAIN, B is for benefits. Why are you recommending this? R is for risks. How likely are there to be problems with this and what could it lead, what other interventions could it lead to? A is for alternatives. You know, what else could we do to deal with this same situation, including doing nothing for the moment, and of course, what are the pros and cons of that? I is for instinct. In other words, first you process that information, but then often we do have gut feelings and we do have values, and those are equally valid. 
So that's the instinct. And then R, um, no, excuse me, I, N, R, that N is for no or not now, which we just discussed. So that can help um, make, uh, make a decision. The other thing which I think is key is that if she's faced with a decision like that, she, um, and it's not, again, if it's not an emergency, she should say, um, could you just give, give us some time alone to, to talk it over? Because I think one of the things that railroads women is, so we want to rupture membranes and discussion may follow or not. But if she, and they're, now they're standing there looking at her. And so she's like, oh, okay, oh, wait, wait, I have another contraction. And, and she's not really making a choice. So to, to create that space where she can consider it and discuss it with whoever is with her, I think is also a good idea. My mentor taught me something I think you'd get a kick out of this is if they felt pressure to answer right then, we want to rupture membranes, we want to start Pitocin, and the woman wanted to have a little time, she actually said, suggest or say to them, we'd like to pray on this for a moment. And by yes. using that, the staff is, you know, they're not going to say, no, you can't do it. Whether they're actually religious and want to pray on it or not, it just gives them a little bit of space because I've never seen a nurse or care provider say, unless there's a true emergency, you know, if it's right. like... Well, the care woman care herself is going to know if it's an emergency. I mean, a real emergency. Yes. <laughs> I'll give you another one that I got from a doula whose father was a car salesman, which is say nothing. So in other words, okay, so we want to rupture membranes. Just look at them. The silence is so uncomfortable that very often they'll then respond with, well, we don't actually have to rupture them right now. You know, in other words, just create a silence of to see what they say, which is a which is a sales technique. Again, non-confrontational. Interesting. The other yeah, thing, interesting. this is not strictly on this topic, but I, I think I would love to have like a, a set of, of um, hacks for sort of obtaining privacy and non-confrontational negotiation. Because another one is if you want to be left alone, start necking with your partner. They, the room <laughs> will clear instantaneously. <laughs> Yes, these are very good, very different tactics, but they all have the same result. I love that. I love when people can walk away with really practical stuff. <laughs> well, I want to thank you so much for all of your time and your information. So I love what you've said, and I feel like our community will really benefit. Where can our community find you, find out more about what you're up to? And if you just don't mind telling us a little bit about Childbirth U. Childbirth U, as in university, is... Um, it's it's website it's childbirth-u.com and um it i sell um narrated slide lectures at very modest cost that will help women make informed choices um, and obtain optimal care for themselves and their babies. So basically, just go to the website and poke around. I, I will say that just I just posted a new lecture, and in celebration of that, I'm offering a 20% discount off the cost of an annual subscription, which gives you access to all of the lectures. They're streamed, but it uses specialized education software, so it's not like watching an MP4. You could, it's actually like showing yourself a slide set. It's like I'm standing in your living room talking through the slides. And you can you can go to any point in the slide lecture. And so if you want to get that um, discount, Child With You has a Facebook page. And the most recent post, or the post at the top, it has the code for the coupon. 
and then you can go to the website and exercise it if you would like. And I, I want to close by saying I wish all of your listeners um, a, 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 an easy birth to a beautiful, healthy baby. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you so much. I'm going to put all your information on the show notes and also be on our website. And again, it was really a pleasure to speak with you. You were the start of my, your book was the start of my path into this world. Um, It's been part of our teacher training curriculum for a long time. So thank you for your time. And I'm so glad that we finally were able to organize a a moment that we could get together. (laughs) Well, you're welcome. And I am so glad that I was part of your journey. Thank you. Well, we'll be in touch. Have a wonderful afternoon. Be well. Okay. (laughs) Bye. This has been an episode of Yoga Birth Babies, produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Thanks for listening.